You guys might uh, not know this, and she's up here, so I'll just say it. Um, okay. <laughs> embarrassing. Okay. Um, a year ago today, uh, we were in Portland packing up a moving van to come move up here. Yeah. So this is our, our one-year one anniversary today of, uh, of being here. And uh, we, are, we are very happy about the decision we made. There's nothing to go along with that other than to let you know that we're excited that it's been one year. We haven't died, and they haven't killed us. Uh, so it's always a good thing. But uh, bye, babe. Love you. Um, if you have your Bibles, grab them. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Uh, if you have your phones, you can pick them up, silence them. Uh, that would be very appreciative. Um, we're in a series called Press On, and we've been looking at different uh, key verses within the book of Philippians. Philippians is a book that Paul wrote while in prison, and what was happening to the church that was going on in his area was that um, in his absence, there was a lot of uh, other preachers, teachers that were rising up, some of them good, some of them bad, um, but the people around there were starting to get a little nervous because there was that transition of leadership, and that can make anybody a little bit, a little bit nervous. And so his, his job through this book is to simply um, encourage the people that he's writing to to um, not only learn to discern good, good leadership from bad leadership. Remember that uh, a couple weeks ago we talked about Philippians chapter 2, about uh, being, being uh, a person that takes on the attitude of Christ. And that's the type of leader we're supposed to be. That's the type of person we're supposed to be. But in, in, uh, also with that, because their problem was they were looking all around at all the other people that were kind of popping up as leaders and preachers and teachers and things like that. And they were, um, they were forgetting to look at themselves. And I don't know if you've ever done this. Uh, I am I am very uh, skilled in the art of looking around at everybody around me, but forgetting to look at myself. And some of us as as uh, just fallen people, we tend to do this at times. And Paul's trying to write a letter to encourage the people that. We need to be a people that not just look around at the people that are um, uh, around us, but we have to look at ourselves, the type of person we are, and uh, the type of life we're living. And a key, a key uh, word, if you were to go back and read the book of Philippians, is this word think. It says he talks about the way we think more than any other, any other letter he writes in the, uh, in the New Testament. And it's a key thought. And the key, key idea behind the book of Philippians is that the way we think is at the core of the way we walk. The way we think is at the core and the root of how we walk, how we live our lives uh, on a daily basis. And so he's writing to a people to say, sometimes in life we need to change the way we think so that we can align ourselves with the, the mindset of Jesus and live like him and share his love. And so Paul's writing this, and he gets to this verse that we're going to get to today. It's Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 through 8 or six through seven, uh, it says this, and it'll be up on the board. We're going to read a couple translations of this and, and one other verse. It says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for what he's done. And then you'll experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand, uh, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your heart and mind as you live in Christ Jesus. In the, in the message translation of the same verse, it's uh, this guy named Eugene Peterson who, uh, who translated the Bible into a little bit of a, a, a simpler language. I love what he did with this verse. It says this, don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. 
And then he says this phrase that I love. It says, let your petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers. Let your petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers. Letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. Why don't you do this just for a minute? Turn to your navel and just say, settle down. It may, it may go straight to the heart of some of you if you had a rough drive over here, but it's okay. Um, it's wonderful what happens when, when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. Let me read one other verse for you. It's, it's the words of Jesus. It's in Matthew chapter 16, verse 25 through 26. It says this. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, for Jesus' sake, you will save it. For what do you benefit if you gain, contr- uh, gain the whole world or you gain control of everything around you, but you lose your own soul? And then Jesus asks his disciples and he asks us today this little question. Is anything worth more than your soul? We're going to be talking today, uh, in, in the weeks past, we've been talking about, uh, about pressing on to, uh, by abandoning, pressing on by adjusting, by forgetting, by rejoicing. But today's big idea is this idea that to let go of worry is to let go of our need for control. Letting go is done through prayer and thanks. We in our society have a control problem and God has the solution for our control problem to set that all up let's pray father we give control of this service to you we choose to hear what you want to say to us we choose to uh, see our lives as you see them and we we choose to uh, respond in the way that you ask us to respond God, let your word be life, let it be truth, let it be um, that thing which divides, Lord God, how we should think and shouldn't think, and we, we give ourselves over to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Control. Um, anybody in here, anybody in here, would you classify yourself as a control freak? Um, okay, we got some, we got some, we got some finger pointing. Um, some of you, um, some of you might not might not raise your hand because you're just type A, or you just like things a certain way, and not a control freak. I just, I just know the right way to do everything. And so you might not have raised your hand. I am a control freak. Um, to start, to start most of my days, let me bring you into um, kind of the start of most of my days. I wake up. And um, in my, it takes me a while for my brain to wake up, and so I kind of stumble over to uh, our TV. I turn the TV on, and I turn my Wii on, because the, my, our, our Wii has a, uh, a thing called Hulu on it. How many, know, how many have Hulu? Um, the reason I do this is because um, you're not going to tell me what to watch or when to watch it, I'm going to control that myself. And so I don't like cable. I like Hulu and Netflix because I can control what I watch. And so I put that on in the background, and I usually, you know, it's usually like uh, John Stewart or Corbella Report, don't judge me. Um, but uh, uh, And then I walk over to the kitchen, and I go for our coffee beans, which I roast myself because you're not going to, uh, you're not going to control the flavor of my coffee. I'm going to control it myself. You can't control the roast that I have. I'm going to roast 
roast them myself. And so I go over to my uh, roast, my beans that I roast myself, I grind them myself, and then I put them into um, the French press and I, I let that happen. And then after I kind of wake up a little bit, I'll grab, I'll grab my phone, I'll grab my Bible. My phone has my Bible reading list, like some of yours does. And I look at my Bible and I look at my phone and I decide in that moment, am I going to follow my Bible reading list, which is telling me what to read, or am I going to choose to read something else that I just feel like reading? Because you, I don't want to be told what to read all the time. I have a problem with uh, control and I have a problem with Bible reading lists. Pray for me. Then get ready for my day. And uh, as I walk out the door, I grab my iPod. If I, know, if I can't find my iPod, I don't leave my house because I need my headphones plugged in because I want to control what I'm hearing at any moment in time because I have issues. And uh, our society makes it really easy to be a control freak to be somebody who um, is the master of their domain, the uh, king of their castle. Um, the, uh, it makes it really easy to do that. I don't know if you've noticed this. Um, our society, my generation, their generation, has been affected with, and in return you have been affected, infected with, um, a mindset you may have heard of before. It's called postmodernism. I don't know if you've heard that term, but essentially what postmodernism uh, would tell us, and I'm, uh, every, there's a lot of debates among like scholarly people about what it really means, and sociologists debate about this all the time, but essentially what it means is um, it's a mindset that tells us that we can create our own reality and dictate what we're going to believe and what we're going to do. Uh, some of our high school students, because of the doctrine uh, workshops we've been doing, we talked a bit, little bit about this, but it started in um, the 1930s. Just like all other culturally shaping ideas, it started off in higher education in small rooms with smart people, and uh, they started to uh, look at different books. And uh, as, they're, as they're looking at just literature in general, the, the historical idea of literature has, had always been to that point that if you read a book, you're reading the book to discover what the author's intent was behind that book. The author wrote the book for a reason, and so you're going to discover the intent of the book, whether it's a novel like Moby Dick or Catcher in the Rye, or whether it's a theological book or a science book or or whatever the case may be. Your your job is to interpret what the author's intent was. They decided, a few different smart people in little boardrooms up top there, decided what if we, instead of decide what the author's intent was, we decided what we uh, are going to believe about what the author uh, is reading. I become the I become the interpreter of the um, the meaning of this book. No longer does it mean whatever the author wanted it to, but I'm going to do it. Started off there. It's a simple idea. It might make some sense. You might get some cool ideas out of it. But the the repercussions of that little idea that started in a little boardroom on you know in the 1930s and uh, it, it trickled through the generations to not just literature, but if I can if I can decide and interpret the uh, the author's meeting in a book, why can't I do that with my life? So suddenly we're not created for a purpose. We we decide what our purpose is. We're not we don't have a pre uh, predisposition to a destiny. We create our own destiny, and that rippled not just into the secular world, but it it, it trickled into through the generations into the church. And now the church comes, uh, uh, some of us at times, we can, uh, we can all fall danger of this is we go to the Bible and instead of creating, uh, deciding what the author's intent was, which was God, uh, instead of deciding what his intent was for a book like Philippians or a book like, uh, Psalms, we, we decide what the interpretation is for ourselves. 
we decide what God thinks. We decide what God intended for this, this book right here. And that doesn't just go for this book, but then this, uh, what we think in that realm affects all of our decisions and all of our lives because suddenly we're at the center of control for our lives. And I don't know if you've ever felt that for yourself or maybe you're, you're realizing at that point, but we all have at times fell victim to it. It can be seen in, in phrases that you might have said, might have heard like, what's good for you is good for you, but I'm going to do what's good for me. Suddenly you interpret what's good for you and let them interpret what's good for them instead of there being a grounded, a grounded interpretation of what truth is and the way we should live our lives. It's control. It's control. The problem with control is if you don't have control, you fall into anxiety. You, you feel out of control and you start to worry. And, and, and so the more you try to control of your life, the more plates you have spinning. And if one of them comes out of control, the more you are trying to get everything in control. And, and, and you can't get all of those plates to spin at the same time. So some of them fall. And we, we have this society. We have, we have a culture today, in our, at least in our American culture, not just in the church, but in the world, that is an anxious culture. It is a stressed out culture. It is a worried culture. But this worried culture, it, um, it didn't start with us and it didn't start with a boardroom in, the, in, in some university in the 1930s. It, it started with the first two people on planet Earth, Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, there's uh, Adam and Eve. Most of us have probably heard the story. You didn't have to go to church to kind of know the idea behind the story. Adam and Eve are put in the middle of paradise and they're made perfect and, and God called them good. And then, then the snake came to them, and, and, and what happened was, is we've always read it as uh, a story where, am I going to eat the apple or not? But that really wasn't what was going on with Eve or with Adam at that point. The apple was just to, uh, pun intended, the fruit, not the root of the situation. It wasn't what was really what was going on. The thing behind the entire temptation was a phrase that Satan had said to Eve, which was this, you could be like God if you eat this fruit. You could be the center of your world. You could be like God, knowing good from evil. You can have control. And that was the temptation. And as we know it, Adam and Eve took the fruit, took the lie, fell for the temptation. And every person on planet Earth since has fallen victim to that same temptation to become their own God, to become the one in control of everything that's going on around them, to know good from evil, to create that idea. The good news is that when Christ came to Earth... When Christ came to earth, he came uh, fully God, fully man, fully God, fully man. But the way that he faced temptation was as a man, not as God. If he had come to earth to face temptation as God, he could not be our substitute because he would have faced the things that we face in, on a day-to-day basis, but with a pretty big advantage of facing them as God, not as man. So we come to Matthew chapter 4, and in Matthew chapter 4, there's that temptation. God, God is, or Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into not a garden, but a wilderness, and he's faced with the same person who has been there since the beginning of time, Satan. Satan begins to tempt Jesus, but the temptation that he gives Jesus in three different forms is essentially this. The temptation was to face the temptation using his divine nature, not his human nature. 
Jesus is fully God, but he was fully man, being led by the Spirit of God. And we, we learned a couple weeks ago, when he came from heaven to earth, it said that he emptied himself and became submissive to God. So he was living fully as a man, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and depending on that empowerment of the Holy Spirit to face the temptations that he was going to face. And so Jesus, being fully man, faced the same temptation to take on the power of God for his own life and to be the center. And he, he, he put that aside and said, I'm going to face this the same way my brothers and sisters are going to have to face this. And that's simply this, submit myself to the Holy Spirit and begin to, uh, to, to stand on what the word says. And he won. And he, he, he won that victory so that we can win that same victory over the temptation to take our situations into our own hands, to become like God in our own lives. And now we simply relinquish our control to the one who defeated that temptation, Jesus. Paul then writes here in, in the book of Philippians chapter 4 that we are to not worry about anything. Worry and control are so interlinked that you're not going to be able to uh, differentiate much between the two. Because what worry is, is simply the lack of control. It's It's the wrong response to the lack of control. And worry has some consequences to it. Um, as of as does any sin in, in the Bible where he has some consequences to that. I want to talk for just a second about these consequences and then we'll get to the good news that there is an answer, there is a remedy to the consequences of worry in our lives. But before we talk about the consequences of worry, I just want to give a disclaimer. Um, I'm not talking about every once in a while getting a little bit worried and kind of getting antsy. I'm, I'm more talking to the people or the, the situations that cause us to carry worry with us. That constant state of worrying, that constant state of anxiety, that constant state of nervousness. So if, you, if you're one of those people like me and like all of us, that every once in a while get worried, and now you're thinking, oh my gosh, I sin all the time, you're good. I'm talking, I'm talking to the seasons of life where we we try to take control of situations and it only leads to worrying. But there's, there's consequences to worrying. First consequence to worrying is simply this. It, um, it, wor- it alters our perception of God and what he thinks about us. It alters our perception of God and what he thinks about us. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, um, it says this. Why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. Don't, uh, they don't work and they don't make their clothes kind of like a lot of teenagers. Um, <laughs> sorry guys. Uh, just thought sometimes the filter between my brain and my head, uh, doesn't work. Um, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully about the wildflowers that, uh, that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he'll certainly care about you. Why do you have so little faith? Uh, I don't know if you've been around kids. Obviously, most of you have kids or are around kids. But when a kid uh, hits a certain age, uh, which is like a day old, um, there there comes a time when uh, they start to desire things in general. And um, you ever watched a kid in the moment where they can't get what they want when they want, uh, especially when they get to be about like two years old? Um, 
they, they, at the age of about two, they start to, when they can't get what they want, when they want, you can see the most happy-go-lucky kid. You can see the kid that has been this, such a good gift to his parents. Uh, you know, you can watch them take a different form when something isn't giving, given to them when they want it, what they want it. And you can watch as the most happy kid can turn and just look at you with the most disdainful look. And usually some response of like, I don't like you anymore, or you're mean, or <laughs> whatever the, depending on the, the vocabulary of your kid, they can throw something at you. But parents have a, a larger, broader perspective for why they don't give kids things at different times. Um, parents aren't going to, at times, at a birthday party, let their kid eat the third, fourth, and fifth cupcake because they know the consequences of the third, fourth, and fifth cupcake when they get home. And so the, the parent's like, no, you're not going to, sorry, little Johnny, you're not going to have the cupcake. And Johnny, then suddenly he's having the most fun day of his life, and then it just turns to chaos and his perception of his parents suddenly starts to change or you know you yell at a kid for wanting to run in in the road because you're trying to uh, protect them they you can't explain to your kids that the car does not have enough time to stop because of the law of you know motion and 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 you can't you can't explain to a kid that but you can just say stop they might not understand you they might understand why you're doing it and their response for, for not being in control at that moment, their response for not understanding the big picture and why you would do uh, or not do whatever you're doing or not doing or having them do, that, that response is sometimes, I'm afraid to say, kind of like our response uh, to God, all of us. At times, God's in heaven and he simply doesn't, give us things we want or gives us things we don't want because he's in heaven seeing the end from the beginning and he is God in, with infinite understanding. He cannot come and explain everything to us of the why's, why he's doing what he's doing because we wouldn't understand. We can't. He's God. He has a bigger perspective. And in those moments when we feel out of control, because we don't understand why he is or isn't doing what he's, we think he should be doing. And we, we are not at the center of it. Our response sometimes can alter our perception of him. He's not loving. He's not gracious. He's not a provider. He's not a healer. He's not, and you can fill in the blank. We've, we've all been there at times. And in return, because our, our idea of who God is is directly in link with who we think he, uh, he thinks he, we are, we start to think he doesn't love us, he doesn't care about us, he's not a provider for us. He, he's, and so we start to fill in the blanks with some really weird ideas because we're not in control and it's, and it's difficult. Worry alters our perception of God and what he thinks about us. Worry also puts a demand on us to control our relationships and our environments. 
There's a story of Mary and Martha. I think some of us have heard it, but the story of Mary and Martha. Um, Jesus comes to Mary and Martha's house. He's just, they're, they're a couple of friends of his, and he's coming. And Jesus walks into the house, and um, Mary and Martha are both equally excited, but their personality types start to show a lot when, out of their excitement. Because when Jesus walks in the door, he goes to sit in the lazy boy and just kind of chill out and just wants to spend some time with his friends. And Mary goes and sits at his feet. And then Martha's in the kitchen trying to control her environment. She wants to be a good hostess. That hospitality gift that is on Martha's life starts to kick into high gear because Jesus is in my house. And I want, I want the lighting to be right. I want the kitchen to be clean. I want, I want the living room to be clean. Oh my gosh, he didn't, he didn't give me any notice and the bathroom hasn't been clean. Can you, uh, Mary, I know, I know you're talking to Jesus, but can you go clean the bathroom? I don't know if they had bathrooms back then, but you, you know the kind of response sometimes we have. We try to control our environments, but even deeper than that, we look at the interaction between Mary and Martha. And what Martha does in the midst of her worrying is she tries to, she tries to control the relationships around her. And so she goes through Jesus to try to control Mary and goes to Jesus and says, Hey, um, Jesus, can you tell Mary to come help me in the kitchen? Because that's the only way she knows how to control the relationships around her because she's worried about what people will think about what she's doing at the moment. And Jesus says this, the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you're worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. And Mary's discovered it and it will be taken away uh, and it will not be taken away from her. We have to be open-handed in the midst of worrying with our relationships. Because sometimes in marriages, sometimes in parenting, sometimes as an employer, when we start to worry and things start to get out of control, we grip tighter and tighter on the environment and the relationships that are around us. And it begins to suffocate not only us, but the people around us. And what God would say to us today is, don't worry about anything in everything Pray and give thanks and the peace of God will come and it will guard our hearts and our minds. And that peace is going to be something you can't understand, but you got to let go first. Worry also causes an unhealthy defensiveness. I don't don't know if you've been like me. Um, When I get nervous, when I feel out of control, when I get a little worried, I start to get defensive. One of the natural responses to being worried is uh, you either you either go uh, to one end or the other. You either get you either get hyper aggressive or hyper uh, uh, regressive. You start to either get really mean or really distant. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes when I'm worried and I feel out of control, I can go from or to one end or the other. And that is, that is one of the, the natural uh, repercussions of not giving certain things over to God is we, we start to o- operate in different extremes and we start to get defensive. And Jesus would say to his disciples uh, uh, something that's pretty interesting. When you're brought into trial in the synagogues or before the rulers or authorities or you're brought before your wife or your husband or you're brought before your boss or your employees or your kids, uh, don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. We have an advocate and a teacher in the Holy Spirit 
who if we are one of the people who when we feel out of control get hyper regressive or aggressive, the Holy Spirit is here to teach us how to respond when we feel out of control. And he'll teach us how to defend ourselves. He'll teach us what needs to be said and how it needs to be said. Worry causes an unhealthy defensiveness, but the Holy Spirit will help us by giving us the peace of God that's beyond all understanding so that we can respond correctly when life throws chaos at us. Lastly, worry crowds out God's word and voice. Jesus said, the seed that fell among the thorns represents uh, others who hear God's word. But all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the worries of life, the lure of wealth, and the desires for other things. So it's not, so no fruit is produced. It's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to teach us and remind us how to live like Jesus and share his love. If our hearts and minds are crowded by the tyranny of the urgent, the worries of life, what seems to be really important right now, and it could very well be very important, but if we hold on to that in an unhealthy, unbiblical way, then when the Holy Spirit tries to speak to us, we won't be able to listen. We won't be able to hear. The Bible will become less relevant. Worship will become less relevant. His presence will be a thing that we kind of get into and get out of without letting it affect our lives because we don't know how to respond. So what do we do in those situations? What is the right response to worry? Again, go back to our verse for today. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for everything he does. Gives us two things that we're supposed to do. Pray and give thanks. If I were to give you a picture of what these two are like, prayer is the Bible, the Bible likens it and gives words around it to pouring out your heart. I'm not going to do it with this water because I'll probably need to drink it later. But if our heart is a vessel, and it is, our heart is something that's filled with something at any moment, whether it's worry or faith, whether it's fear or love, our, our heart's filled with some stuff. It's a vessel. The Bible says that that praying is pouring out our hearts. And in order for God's peace to come into our lives, we have to empty some stuff out of it first because peace can't fill an already full vessel. It'll just start to overflow. That's when we just read that the seed of the word of God begins to not be relevant in our lives. It's crowded out. Peace can be crowded out by worry. Peace can be crowded out by anxiety. Peace can be crowded out by fear. So we pour out our heart to God in prayer and not just a list of the things we're worried about, heartfelt prayer. The word here that he's using is, for prayer is begging. It's like, I really need you, God. It's putting, it's putting vulnerability and humility behind our prayer. It's putting emotion and, and, and really heartfelt type words and, and, and responses and tones to our prayers. The Bible's very clear that the type of prayer that we need to be praying on a regular basis is heartfelt supplications, urgent prayers, begging of God, not because we have to convince him to bless us, but because through that type of prayer, is, is, is that type of prayer is the type of prayer that begins to empty our hearts. We pour out our hearts. We, we empty the vessel. Hannah, when, in the book of, uh, of 1 Samuel, Hannah, when, she, when all she wanted was a baby, 
but she was infertile. It says of her, uh, she has this interesting response because she's in the, in the temple and she's praying, but the, the, the temple priest comes to her and, and is saying, you know, what are you, what are you doing? Are you drunk in my, in my temple? Because the way she was expressing her prayer made her look like a crazy woman. And, uh, and he comes up to her and he's like, what are you doing? Are you drunk? And her, listen to her, her response. First Samuel chapter one, verse 15 says, oh no, sir. She's trying to be really respectful, but could you imagine being confronted as a drunk when you're pouring your heart out to God? Oh no, sir. She replied, I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger, but I, I am very discouraged. And I was pouring my heart out to the Lord in the midst of our discouragement or worry. Have you learned yet to pour your heart out to God or, or is this something maybe we can grow in as a church? David's admonition in Psalms uh, 62 verse 8, Oh, my people, trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart to him. For God is our refuge. We go into the refuge and we just spill our guts to the one who loves us, who created us, who cares for us. Just as First Peter says, cast your cares on the Lord for he cares about you pour out our hearts to him. Solomon, David's son, says in Lamentations 2.19, rise during the night and cry out. Pour out your heart like water to the Lord. Lift up your hands to him in prayer, pleading for your children, for in every street they are faint with hunger. Pour out your heart. Lift your hands. Don't sit and, and try to say that... Uh, I have it all together when we approach God. Be afraid to spill your, don't be afraid to spill your guts. Don't be afraid to use vulnerable language. We gotta, we gotta learn to just begin to empty our vessels because that's when we are gonna experience his peace. And then after we empty our hearts, we, we empty the vessels, we pour out our hearts to him. Then it says to give thanks. In all of this thing, we, we create, we, 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 we kind of sprinkle thanks throughout all of our emotional pleas to God. And what thanksgiving does is it creates a new vessel that's going to be able to not just hold peace for a second, but be able to contain peace for a long period of time through the midst, in the midst of our storms. Because God gives peace to us before he fixes our situations. God gives peace to us before we're able to get all the answers to all the questions that we have. And if we can't learn in the midst of pouring out our heart to him to give thanks to him and what giving thanks to him is, you begin to discipline yourself to recognize what he's already doing in your life, what he's already done in your life, and what he will do according to his promises. We discipline our minds to begin to thank him for that because that is what's going to carry us from the point of peace and to the point of him walking us through to the solution. Because peace always comes before solution. This peace that he gives us is like this eye of the storm. And there's chaos all around us, and we just need to stay in the eye of the storm, and eventually the storm will subside. But if we don't learn to just pour out our hearts to him and then develop the discipline of recognizing the good stuff around us, then the moment we open up and pour out our hearts to him, we're going to walk away from that prayer time experiencing his peace and not know how to carry his peace because we're going to then all of a sudden go back to observing all the things that are wrong around us. And there's a discipline of peace. 
And it's not just so that we can be happy-go-lucky people. It's a discipline we have because God cares about us and he wants to teach us how to think so that we can walk well through difficult situations. It's our right response to worry. And that worry leads us to, or that, 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 uh, that prayer and thanksgiving, it leads us to the peace of God. And where does the peace of God affect us most? It says it in the verse we read, in our minds and in our hearts. In our minds, our thoughts, our perspectives. The way we interact with our world, our worldview begins to change when we learn to develop thanksgiving and learn how to pour out our hearts to God. Our worldview begins to change. How we interact with society, how we interact with circumstances, how we interact with our families, with our jobs, with our finances, how we interact within the church realm, all of this begins to change when his peace comes and begins to guard our minds. Changes the way we think. And then then he just begins to... He begins to change our hearts. It also says he guards our hearts. That's what, that's what excites me even more because he guards our hearts before they're ever changed. So in the midst of that whole journey, because this isn't like something you wake up with tomorrow and learn to uh, 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 just be thankful. It's a journey. It's a process. It's something that we, we're all working on. Um, in the midst of that, if we can just begin to, in the awkwardness of it all, learn to pour out our hearts to God. In the meantime, he'll begin to guard our hearts. When worry comes in, it's Jesus standing at the door of your heart. And when, when fear comes to set in, it's Jesus standing at the door of your heart saying, yeah, you're not going to come in here today. But it makes sense. Our fears sometimes make sense. Our worries sometimes make sense. It's based on fact. And what, 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 what Jesus is trying to get to us is, is change our minds because facts facts are made to be changed. When facts encounter Christ, they change if the facts don't align with him. Because he is more powerful than truth because he is truth. He's more powerful than reality. He is a greater reality than this temporary life we have could ever explain to us. And he just wants us to pour out our hearts to him. And he's going to come and bring peace to our minds. He's going to bring, bring peace to our hearts. Our emotions will begin to settle down. And that's, that's why we come to the communion table. It's the first, first Sunday of the month. And here at Gateway, we, we come to the communion table. And what the communion table does in our lives is it allows us for a moment to remember that he's in control. It, it allows us a moment to remember that when we were in our sin and our chaos, he came and he died for us. And we know that he is in control because he always has been and he's done a pretty good job so far. It allows us to come and, and give thanksgiving to him and remember all the great things he's done for us. We come to the table because we're a thankful people for the amazing work that Christ has done for us. Imagine what our lives would be like if we didn't have him. Some of us, our marriages wouldn't exist. Some of us, our lives would have ended. Some of us, our worlds would be chaotic. And some of us, in the midst of our chaotic world, we would have no one to turn to. We're thankful. 
we pour out our hearts to him, but then discipline ourselves to remember that he's always good, no matter what our truth and our circumstances tell us. And we're going to come to the table today and we're going to remember what he's done for us. And we're going to remember what to be thankful for. We're going to remember that he is in control and we are not unless we allow ourselves to be. And then we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go to our seats. We're not gonna take the communion here. Take them to your seats. And all right, here's what I want us to do for the moments before we all take it together as a as a people. Begin to ask yourself, um, Jesus. Don't call yourself Jesus. I don't know why I said ask yourself and then said Jesus. Forgive me for that. Uh, if you call yourself Jesus, then you know you have a control issue. Um, <laughs> ask yourself this question. Is there something that I've allowed myself to be in control of that I should give over to him? And then ask yourself another question. What in the midst of my circumstances can I be thankful for? Thankfulness is a discipline. It's a muscle that must be uh, uh, exercised. It's something we must learn. And today we're going to just, we're going to kind of work on this exercise we're going to do a little bit of this. So here's what we're going to do. In, in just a second, we're going to play a CD. Um, you'll stand to your feet. And then from the front to the back, just kind of work your way th- this way, Start starting with the front. And you can kind of c- come down this way and then circle around this way. It just works out easiest for us. Uh, youth, kind of wait till they're, they're done with this uh, so that you can kind of finish this off. Um, So you'll have to stay in your seat. But once you grab the elements, ask yourself these two questions. I believe they'll probably be up on on the screen in case you forget it or you just need to kind of stare at something. What do I need to let go of? What do I need to thank him for? We're going to receive communion together. And through that, we're going to give him control of some things. And through that, we're going to thank him for some things. So why don't we all stand to our feet for just a moment? And you can go ahead and, and play the CD. And we'll just start with you guys and you guys. And you just kind of circle around here. And uh, while you're in line, ask yourself the question. When you get back to your seat, ask yourself the question. Because I think God wants to meet us in this place today to do some pretty powerful stuff. <laughs>